Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. If you missed this service, we hope to see you this Sunday at either 8.45 a.m. for our praise and worship service or 11 a.m. for our traditional service. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. So I'm just glad to be here with you once again. And today we are finishing up the church-wide campaign called The Story. You should clap for that, okay? It's been 31 weeks. And I know I've heard so many good reports about how the Bible makes a whole lot more sense, how you're learning, and especially the Old Testament and kind of the stories and how it all flows together and how Jesus just didn't appear out of anywhere. He was from somewhere and something was happening and something else was going on. And so just all the good things you've said about that, we appreciate that and we're so glad that you're learning. Today we're going to look at the very last book of the Bible called Revelation, one that may be a little bit harder for some of us to understand, but the good thing is we're going to understand some really important parts and look at it this morning. Now, just to get us on the same page, I don't know about you, but for me, I love happy endings when it comes to a movie. Anybody else? Yeah, some of us, okay. So I'm, I'm a sucker for the guy getting the girl, everything turning out okay, nobody dying, everything working out, I mean, um, happily ever after. But today it doesn't work that way anymore. If you've watched modern movies, you never know what's going to happen. There's always a twist, there's always a turn, and I get pretty upset about it. I don't want reality to be in a movie, right? Like, I live that every day. I want happily ever after fairy tales in my movies. And when it doesn't work out that way, I kind of get frustrated. Now today, what you got to do is you got to sit through this whole movie, couple of hours. You're like, Brian, I sit through your sermons, feels like a couple hours too. But anyways, we go through these movies and we're just like, is it going to work out? They put this tension in this drama and you're like, I don't really know. Well, luckily for us today, we're going to look at a book. And guess what you get to do with a book? Have you ever read a book? We're like, yeah, you get to look at the end of the story if you want first. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up, turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to start at the end, and then we're going to go to the beginning. You see, the book of Revelation isn't just a book. It's the end of the book, the end of the entire collection of Scripture. The end of Revelation brings together everything else we've learned, all other 65 books into its final ending. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. He's an old man at this time. His friends have been killed for the faith. Rome's influence looks like it's never going to be stopped. He's been cast to live on an island by himself so he cannot do any more damage in the name of Christ. And it's there while he's by himself, he's cast to this island that Christ comes to him once again and reveals to him the end times. Kind of, He lets him see behind the curtain and look at how these events will eventually unfold. And so what we're going to look at in Revelation chapter 21 is at the end. Evil has been defeated. Christ has come back. People have been judged. Thing has been corrected. And now Christians get to receive the inheritance that we believe is promised to us. Look at this. It says this, Revelation 21. Verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Now listen, we're going to talk more about this later, but our eternal dwelling place is not in heaven. Heaven is somewhere we'll go as a temporary abode, but God will create a new heaven, a new earth, where God comes down and joins us on this new earth. There's going to be a new society, a whole new thing happening. And what's important to see is that God will dwell with us once again. Life will be different, but not so different where you're floating around on clouds playing a harp. That doesn't sound like heaven, does it? We're like, no, it doesn't. I don't even know how to play the harp. But what do I do? I know. That's, that's not what this is. Look at this, verse 3b. It says, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Listen to this. God's going to dwell with us and it's going to be so intimate that he's going to wipe the tears from your eyes. No more crying. No more pain. No more death because the old order of things, that, that sin stuff we've been talking about so much, that's now gone. Something new is happening. Verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Listen to this powerful statement. This idea of giving water is the future blessings we will receive freely from our God. You see, we see a very happy ending from the very, very beginning when we see God created everything. He had this intimate relationship with human beings. We were designed in an image. We were to show, uh, reflect his glory into the earth. But then we saw sin entered. And we saw it get very messy and very distorted. And then we see, all right, I'm skipping a lot. You were with us for the study, though. Then we see Jesus come and enter our world, our pain, our suffering, pay for our sin so we can be redeemed and live in harmony with God. And he said, he's coming back one day. So what's he waiting on, Brian? Well, he's given us this mission, church. He's given us this mission to share the gospel, to tell other people about Jesus. He's waiting so more people will know him, more people will believe, more people will experience salvation in Jesus Christ. Because we're waiting one day for God to set all of this right. And there's hope. There's hope that there's going to be a new earth, a new creation, this new dwelling with God in us and us with God. And we will be his people with no more pain and no more suffering and no more crying. Does that sound pretty good? For three of us, the rest of us, we weren't listening. That should be amazing. Verse 7, those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. If you write in your Bibles or you have a phone, please circle or highlight that word victorious. Some translations read overcomers. The ones who conquer, they will be a part of this new life. 
He says, the one who is victorious and overcomer will be with him and dwell with him, which makes me wonder. And it should make you wonder. Well, what does it mean to be victorious? What does it mean to be an overcomer? We'll get to that, but look at verse 8. But the cowardly. You say, Brian, you can't say that word in church. Well, no, no, it's in the Bible, okay? But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. What I want to bring your attention this morning is that word cowardly. You should circle that or highlight that. Everything else in that list you've probably heard of or thought of or you saw in the list, but it's dealing with specific sins mentioned in this book. But right here, there's a word play, and it's something you've got to understand. It's a challenge given to every single one of us. You can be victorious, or you can be a coward. I said, Brian, you shouldn't say that. No, this, this is coming from the Bible. This is what it said at the end. There's an option given. Two things are at stake here. This is a challenge for us to be an overcomer, to see the end result. What it means to be an overcomer is that you're going to be in this dwelling place with God. You're going to be in victory, this eternal dwelling where God is walking with you. And this challenge is for believers in Jesus Christ to maintain a steadfast loyalty to Jesus Christ. You see, while this challenge is affirmed here, while it's spelled out, it was giving at the very beginning of the book. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and flip now to Revelation chapter 2. You see, we've talked about a lot in our study of the story. When we got to the New Testament, we learned that after Jesus died, he gave the church a mission. Do you remember that? Remember, it's found in Matthew 28 that we are to make disciples of all nations. And we saw that after he gave us this mission, we saw the early church carried out. We learned about Peter and Paul and how about they traveled all over the world to actually share the gospel with people, set up these churches, these body of believers who worshiped him and, and lived life together and went out and shared their faith. You see, this word victorious is used 10 times in this book. Eight of those 10 times are talking to these seven churches that Jesus speaks to. You see, at the very beginning, when Christ comes and talks to John, he talks to seven specific churches about things they need to deal with. You see, Revelation was written about 50 to 60 years after Christ had returned. I mean, after Christ left. They'd been, he'd been gone for some time. They would have been now, after 50 or 60 years, think about it, they'd now be on the second generation of leadership. People who weren't directly with Christ, people who were having to guide, lead, and, and manage these churches and figure out what does it look like for us to be a body of believers. And today we only have time to look at five of these seven churches. The two we're not going to look at are giving really good reports. You should go read this on your own. But the scholar Grant Osborne says this. He said, these messages directly, excuse me, these messages directly address the struggles of seven first century churches. But together they present a unified message relevant for all churches. You'll see why they're important in a second, but there's a lot at stake. Because to each one of these churches, he tells them to be victorious. And at the end, he tells us what victory means, what we will then inherit. The first church we're going to look at is the church at Ephesus. 
Again, we're going to have to skim through these. I hope you read them on your own time. But this church had a lot of good things. Jesus said a lot of great things. They were doing good deeds. They were hard workers. They persevered when times got tough. They even stood up and dealt with false teachers. But verse 4, he says this. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. This issue of this church that Jesus is addressing is they have abandoned their love, their first love. And this is such an interesting problem because scholars point out, listen, they're standing up for the truth. They're talking against heresies. They're standing up to false prophets. They have a ton of biblical knowledge. They're doing good deeds, but they've abandoned their love for the Lord. And I bet in your Christian walk, you've probably met many of people who know a whole lot about the Bible, but they don't seem too loving. You ever met one of them? They're like, yeah, it was my dad or my granddad or my neighbor. You see, Osborne says, it's clear that the Ephesians loved the truth more than they loved God or one another. This does not mean that they were not believers or they had no love at all, for the comments of verse 2 and 3 would not be possible in that case. Rather, their early love had grown cold and been replaced with harsh zeal for orthodoxy. You see, doctrine is important, church. But we can't abandon our love for people and Jesus. Remember, Jesus said this in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my what? Commands. Hold on, what's his command? He gets to it in that same section. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. You see, our love for Jesus is shown by how we love other people. We can never forget that, church. Our command is to love. And so he tells them to repent, to go back to how they used to love them, how they started off loving. And what we can learn from this just as a principle for us is we cannot abandon our love for Jesus and our love for others. You say, well, of course, Brian. Well, I'm glad we're on the same page, aren't you? It's going to get a little harder, okay? Aren't we on the same page so far, though? Yeah, we got to love Jesus. we got to love others. He says this, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You're like, Brian, we don't even have lampstands. That doesn't matter. He can come remove it. We don't even have one. Listen, I don't have time to explain it out to you, but lampstand, what he's telling them is you're stop being a church. He's saying, I will come and remove what makes you a church. You will not be a church any longer. This is rough if we abandon love. And he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is, is it up? It's, it's in yellow, victorious. There's our word. We're going to see it a bunch. The one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise of God. Here it is. You can be victorious. You have a choice. Are you going to turn back and love me, or are you going to repent? Then we have the church at uh, Pergamum. Jesus had good things to say about this church. They remained true to him. They did not renounce their faith. But look at this, verse 14. Nevertheless, I've, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate the food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have also... Have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, 
Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So now we have the exact opposite, whereas the Ephesian church overcame the teachings of this heresy, but settled for cold, uh, cold orthodoxy. Excuse me, tongue twisters today. Cold orthodoxy. This church did not overcome the false teachings. They embraced them and allowed them. They didn't stand. Toward within their midst, it's what we call heresy, false teachings about Jesus were taking place. Osborne states, while the Christians were remaining faithful, they were allowing a heretical movement to flourish in their midst, thereby endangering the whole church. See, what we have to say is we don't forsake the truth and we, for the sake of love, and we don't forsake love for the sake of truth. Both are extremely important. The gospel writer John teaches us how Jesus pulled this off. He says this in John 1.14. I got a lot of scripture today, by the way. If you can't follow along, it's on the board. It's on the wall, I mean. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. What's that next part? Full of grace and truth. Is it grace or truth? Or kind of a balance of grace and truth? Like I'm gonna have a little bit of grace and a little bit of truth. No, no, complete grace, complete truth. We don't abandon one for the other. It's not a balance. It's that we have to be completely gracious, but completely truthful. We don't abandon truth for love or grace. We don't abandon grace and truth for love. It's both. Saying, Brian, that's really hard. I know. Completely gracious, but we still stand on the truth. So we must not abandon our love for Jesus and others, but we must also be grounded and led by biblical authority because that's what God's are teaching. That's what directs us. The teachings of Scripture are what keeps us on track. He goes to say, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is... That, that's you. Victor, that, so that's you. Let's try it again. The one who is... Yeah, here we go. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give the person a white stone with a new name on it. I wonder what my new name is going to be. I'm very interested in that, but let's keep going. Known only to the one who receives it. Again, another blessing. Another thing that's going to happen if you're victorious. You see, standing against false teaching isn't easy. You say, well, Brian, especially today, because we live in a world where we kind of want everybody to believe or think or say, like, there's no truth. There's no really right or wrong. It's kind of all our own opinion to which Jesus would say, that's not accurate. There is a such thing as truth. Then we have the church, Thyatira. This church, Jesus had good things to say about them, their love, their faith, and they were doing more than what they did at first, meaning they were continually to grow and do more deeds. But nevertheless, he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Jesus continues to explain this problem, and it's very, very similar to the one we just saw. Right? It, it's where they're allowing false teaching. This one's a little bit different because now they're following an actual prophet, someone who's claiming to, to speak for God, which means we're going to take that principle a little bit further. We just learned, and I'm going to say we must be grounded in biblical theology. And, and this might scare some of us, but it doesn't have to. You see, this church was being led by false teachings 
Uh, excuse me, the church we just talked about, the one at Pergamum, was led by false teachings of a group. This one was led by a false prophet who said they're speaking on behalf of God. So being grounded in theology prevents us from being led by false teachers who say, hey, I have a word from the Lord. We say, mm, that, that's not right with what we believe and what we've been taught from the scriptures. You see, it's not uncommon today for people to take a little bit of truth and mix it in with a whole bunch of wrong things. Your kids ever told you a half-truth? You ever been guilty of teaching a half Yeah, it's pretty easy to tell a half-truth. Like, well, I'm, kind of, I'm not really lying. I'm really kind of telling the truth if you want to think about it. But the only way to know if it's a half-truth or not is by knowing truth. That's what theology does. Biblical theology allows us to understand how God works and what he does. And theology doesn't have to scare you. It just teaches us why, what we believe and why we believe it. That's why we're doing this belief study in two weeks. We're going to learn some basic theological principles, ten of them. Very easy to understand. And, and it's kind of the th same thing like you've heard about secret servant agents. Do you know the way they detect false money? We've heard this before. They detect false money by knowing what real money looks like. They study it, feel it. They don't study fake money, they study real money. And then they can easily spot what's not right. That's what theology does. It helps us understand who God is, and then we can pretty easily hear what's off track. Jesus tells the church that he knows not everyone has fallen victims to this. The ones who've stayed faithful continue to stay faithful. The other ones he tells to repent. And he says to the one who is victorious... And does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that the one will rule with them with an iron scepter and will dash them into pieces like pottery, just as I've received the authority from my father. He says, are you going to be an overcomer? Are you going to be victorious when it comes to false teachings? So to recap, we must not abandon the command to love others and love Jesus. We must be grounded and led by biblical authority, and we must be grounded in biblical theology, and we'll learn about all that stuff as we go. Then we have the church at Sardis. It says this, Revelation 3. He says, I know your deeds. You have being a reputation. Listen to this. This is like a gut check. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Would that scare you if Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come to you at night, and you don't know when I'm going to come, but I'm going to show up? But I know Jesus talked like that. I know the Bible's kind of tough sometimes. You see, people thought they had it all together. The people around the church thought they had it together, which means the church itself probably thought it had it all together. Look at us. We got it. We're doing it. Woo. Getting themselves in the pack of the back. Jesus says, no. You think you're vibrant, alive? But you're dead. Is it possible that a church can be so busy doing things being busy, having a lot of programs, a lot of things, just busy, busy, busy. Is it possible that we can be so busy doing things we're missing the important things of Christ? Is it possible for you to be so busy in life that you forget to do the important things of life? Like, yeah, of course, it happens all the time. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus tells them to wake up, strengthen what little remains 
because they're all, the whole thing's about to die. You see, we must be spiritually alive and carrying out spiritual works. We don't want to do things just because we've always done them. We don't want to do things just to be busy. We want to do important things that add spiritual value and is a part of what Christ is doing in this world. Which means as a church, we've got to have spiritual conversations. We, can't, we cannot neglect the Holy Spirit, his movement here, his movement within us, and his work in our lives. You see, their deeds were insufficient. Jesus said, wake up. Don't fool yourself. Wake up. He says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is will be like them, be dressed in white, and I will never blot out the name of the person from the book of life, but will acknowledge them before my Father and his angels. Whoever's ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Must not abandon our love for Jesus and our love for others. We must be grounded and led by biblical authority. We must be grounded in biblical theology, and as a church, we must be spiritually alive, carrying out spiritual works. And are we going to be overcomers? Christ asks. A church at Laodicea, verse 3, 14. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witnesses, the ruler of God's creation. This is one you're probably familiar with. You've heard it before. He says, I know your deeds, that you were neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. To properly understand this, we've got to understand the area, a little more of the history. You see, there was no water source in this area. They had none. They had to pipe it in from the hot springs. It's called a denzili. And so they had to pipe in the water. So by the time it reached them, it was lukewarm. Or think about it, it's from hot springs, piping it in in the middle of, you know, over there. By the time it gets them, it's just warm. It's not good for anything. You see, because six miles north is this area called Hierapolis, which had hot natural springs, which were known for their healing qualities. So up here, you got these waters that are known people would go and get healed and be refreshed and cure ailments. But 10 miles to the east was Colossae, which is known for its cold, pure drinking water, which was refreshing to the soul. So one area around them was known for hot springs. The other was known for cold and refreshing. But Jesus says, you were like your water supply, lukewarm and gross. Jesus Jesus just says the love. Y'all got to read your Bible. He loves us so much, he'll tell us the truth. Do you love your kids enough to talk to them about truth? Do you say, hey, go play in the middle of the road, it'll be all right? You're like, Brian, your kids, my kids are running the road all the time. I'm telling you, this is what I'm dealing with as a parent. I gotta stop them from getting hit by cars, and I love them enough to do it. Jesus is saying, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Their works are void, they're useless, they're not healing. They're not refreshing to the soul. We must, as a church, have life-giving ministries. We must ask the hard questions and say, hey, are we, is what we're doing a part of what God is doing in this world? 
Are we making disciples? Are people growing in their faith? Are people knowing more about Jesus? Or are we just doing things? The one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. We must not abandon our love for Jesus and others. We must be grounded and led by biblical authority. We must be grounded in biblical theology. We must be spiritually alive, carrying out spiritual works. And we must have life-giving ministries where we're seeing life change. I want every single person here, including myself, to experience life change. To know more Jesus and to be challenged and changed by him. You see, Revelation is the only book in the Bible who explains heaven in detail, and we like that part. But what I hope you find very interesting, and it should challenge all of us theologically, is Jesus isn't talking to individuals. He's talking to a collective group of people. He's talking to the corporate bodies. You see, the Christian faith was never meant to be lived alone. This idea why I can be a Christian, not be a part of a church, is not a biblical one. He's talking to the whole group. All of them, you got to be in this together. We should be a community that comes together to persevere in our faith till the end. You see, remember, Jesus gave us a mission to make disciples, to reach people with the gospel. And what I want you to understand is he is then going to hold us accountable for carrying it out. You say, Brian, well, that's, that's just, I, mean, I didn't know that. I know. This is what's happening. He's talking to a collective group of church saying, hey, you're not doing what I've asked you to do. Which means as a church, you and I, collectively, we have to be serious about reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ and teaching them to follow him. There is evidently a lot at stake. And when we do this as a church, we will face difficulties. We will face challenges, just like we see these churches facing difficulties, facing challenges. We have to make a choice to be victorious in Jesus Christ because we have a real enemy. Whether you call it Satan, the devil, evil, however you want to talk about that, is alive trying to destroy us. There's no such thing as being neutral. According to the scriptures, there is a spiritual war going on. And we, together, must be victorious get serious about what Christ has called us to do. And remember, you and I, collectively as a church, we are able to be victorious because Christ was victorious for us. Those who are in Christ will persevere to the end. Listen, Jesus isn't saying we have to earn our salvation. That's not what's happening. What he's explaining is those in Christ, those who know Jesus, will persevere to the end. We will make the hard choices and be about what Jesus is about because we know it's important. We will choose victory instead of being cowardly. He's given us and will hold us accountable to this mission. And according to him, there's a lot at stake. You may say, well, Brian, I didn't know any of this stuff was in the Bible. I mean, Jesus seems kind of hard. Seems kind of harsh, like, that's rough. Read your scriptures. It's been here the whole time. We gotta remember, Jesus is also the judge 
of the world. And he will hold all of us accountable, collectively his church. But remember, to ease that tension, because I know it just got, it got deep, bro, it got tight. It was like, wow, Brian. Listen to this. Revelation 22. The temple had come down to the earth. I don't have this on the screen. You're just going to have to listen. He says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the land down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. You remember that from the beginning? Oh, it's back. Stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not, they will not need the light of lamp nor the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. You see, the entire picture of heaven is given so you and I will be what? victorious because life is hard yours is mine is and we he asks us to be victorious to persevere to be about his works and there is an eternal paradise waiting for us so church this is how it ends paradise and as a church, I know we are choosing to be victorious. And I'm excited about it. Will you pray with me?